You are listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM. KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. Altogether, we are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting Listener-Supported Community Radio. We're also found on Facebook. And today we're broadcasting from the Redwood Coast Senior Center in Fort Bragg. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Here we are, one month plus post-election and days pre-inauguration. A lot has gone on and a lot more will go on. Some of it good, but most of it not so good. Trump and his minions are making it hard for Biden to hit the ground running. I hear a lot of people saying that Trump has committed treason and, of course, is accusing many people of treason. Does he project? Of course he does. Treason is an arcane part of our Constitution, and because it hasn't often been adjudicated, it is not well understood. Because we need more info, I have invited one of our country's foremost treason experts onto this show to talk about his latest book, On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Carlton F.W. Larson is a Martin Luther King Jr. professor of law at the University of California Davis School of Law, where he teaches American constitutional law and English and American legal history. I am very happy to welcome Carlton Larson to Politics, a Love Story. Hi, Carlton. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure. Uh, You must be getting a lot of calls these days. It's, it's, it keeps getting weirder and weirder, doesn't it? It does. It does. Um, well, you state early on in your book that treason is the only crime specifically defined in the United States Constitution and is routinely described by judges as more heinous than murder. Today, the term is regularly tossed around by politicians and pundits on both sides of the aisle. But as accusations of treason flood the news cycle, it is not always clear what the crime truly is or when it should be prosecuted. So could you help us out with that? Sure. So treason is, um, as a sort of a general term, uh, refers to betrayal of one's country. And every country in the world has some type of treason law. Uh, The United States is distinctive in that uh, our Constitution actually defines the crime of treason. Uh, This is in Article 3. And it says that treason is limited to levying war against the United States or adhering to their comfort. So these are the only two types of treason that can exist uh, under American federal law, uh, levying war against the United States or adhering to enemies. And so if Congress wanted to expand uh, the definition of treason, it would not be able to uh, given this restriction in the Constitution. It would have to be done by an, an, an amendment, is that correct? Yes, the only way to change it would be a constitutional amendment, and uh, that's quite difficult because you'd have to get two-thirds of uh, both houses of Congress and then three-quarters of the states to agree, and, uh, and, and you know now it's hard to get anybody to agree on anything, <laughs> much less something that would require uh, that much agreement. So that was the uh, treason clause that was adopted in, 18, in 1787. There's also another aspect of that clause that provides that the Congress shall have the power to declare the punishment of treason. Yeah, so this gives Congress the ability to set uh, what the punishment is. And 
historically, that has been uh, death, uh, it's, and it still is. Uh, it is a capital crime. If you are <coughs> convicted of treason, you could potentially be executed, um, although in most cases that hasn't happened. Um, what usually happened is that a convicted person gets a term of imprisonment, um, and so we've actually only seen one person executed under um, federal authority for treason. And uh, one of the less-known features of Americans, uh, American treason law is that the offense is not limited to treason against the U.S. Forty-three states define the offense of treason against them, either in their state constitution or in a criminal statute. Yeah, so this is um, sort of a fascinating part of American law. Uh, during the American Revolution, uh, treason was prosecuted by the states because we didn't have a federal court system. So we had uh, state-level treason laws, which were used um, to prosecute people who had he- adhered to the British. Uh, and then those laws essentially remained on the books, and as new states came into the Union, they copied them as well. So uh, the offense of treason against a particular state uh, still exists. Now, I don't think that crime has any meaning when it comes to aiding enemies, because states don't have enemies. Um, only the, the federal government, the national government, has enemies. And so anyone who's an enemy of a state would also be an enemy of the U.S. Uh, but to the extent that states define the crime as levying war against the state, that is, you're trying to overthrow the state government by force and violence, that still could be considered uh, an act of treason against the state. And there have been a handful of prosecutions uh, in American history uh, on this point. Uh, uh, the most notable uh, are in Rhode Island uh, in the 1840s, when there was a dispute over what was the legitimate government of Rhode Island, and the um, sort of old government prosecuted the leaders of the new government uh, for treason against Rhode Island. Uh, we had John Brown uh, and Edwin Coppock who were executed for treason against Virginia uh, for their role in the, the raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. And then in the 1920s, we had um, a series of what were called mine wars in West Virginia, um, open combat between uh, miners and um, forces of the state and of the state and of the coal mines uh, that led to uh, several treason prosecutions in that state. Well, since the adoption of the U.S. Constitution and the creation of federal treason law, state treason prosecutions have been a rarity. State treason laws are like a rusty tool in the backyard shed. We have a vague sense that the tool was useful at some point, so we would rather not discard it. But for now, we cannot imagine why we need it or how it ought to be used. I like that analogy so much that I wanted to bring it forth. Yeah, so that is a wonderful analogy, and I must um, note that is actually not mine. Um, that is um, um, the the words of the, the one person who's written a, sort of the leading law review article on uh, state treason law. And so it is an interesting question, you know, is this of any current vitality? And um, when the book was released uh, in September, I probably would have said, well, probably not. Um, but then, of course, as you know, events get weirder and weirder, and then we had the Michigan uh, militia incident, uh, where you had these group of people who looked like they were planning to kidnap the Michigan Michigan governor uh, and try to, you know, force her to do various things, and that would actually, I think, count uh, as levying war against the state of Michigan. Uh, if they had actually carried it out, they probably could have been charged uh, with treason against Michigan. Now, because they only conspired to do it, didn't actually do it, um, it couldn't... Um, be considered treason as such. It would just be a conspiracy. Um, but, you know, there, 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 again, there's sort of current events 
um, showing the relevance of some of this older body of law. So if, um, if the state uh, took this uh, militia that was about to uh, uh, kidnap the governor, uh, did they have any, the state, did the state of Michigan have any authority to punish the offense of treason? After all, one could argue that the United States Constitution reserves treason prosecutions solely to the federal government. The notion of treason against Oregon, for example, seems on the surface as implausible as Oregon holding a seat in the United Nations. Yeah, so um, this is the issue that had been debated even in the Constitutional Convention itself, whether you could have the crime of treason against the state. And the constitutional text, I think, sort of leaves this vague. What it does is it defines treason against the United States, um, but it doesn't say anything about treason against uh, a state. And so the people who have been charged with this have tended to raise this argument and say, you know, there's no such thing as treason against the state. That's been rejected uh, by the state courts that have heard it. Uh, so I suspect that uh, it still is um, a viable crime, um, granted a very, very rare one. And you pointed out that um, uh, American citizens are not the only people that are subject to treason law. Uh, can you explain uh, how that works? Sure. This is one of those sort of pockets of treason law, which is sort of um, bewildering when you when you first hear about it. Uh, and I think the sort of common sense notion is, well, only a citizen of the United States could commit treason against it. Um, but that's not actually true. Um, so to be subject to American treason law, you have to owe allegiance to the United States. Uh, and if you are a citizen you hold what's called permanent allegiance, uh, meaning that you owe allegiance to the United States wherever you go in the world. So uh, if you go to another country, uh, you still must be loyal to the United States. So during World War II, for example, we prosecuted people, American citizens who had aided uh, you know, the Nazis in Germany and uh, the fascists in Italy and um, the imperial government in Japan. And so they were charged for what they did in those countries. Now, there's also what's called temporary allegiance, and that is that allegiance owed by people who are temporarily present within a country. So if you are a non-citizen and you are present uh, within the United States, uh, you are subject to our treason law while you are here, uh, meaning that while you're here, you can't levy war against the United States and you can't adhere to our enemies, and you could be uh, prosecuted and convicted um, even though you are not a citizen. Uh, and most other countries have some version of this doctrine as well. Um, so if you travel, for example, to France while you are there, um, you're, you're going to be subject to France's treason law. Now, when you leave the country, um, then that obligation disappears. So um, once you've departed the United States, you're no longer uh, subject to allegiance uh, in the same way uh, that a citizen would be, uh, where the duty really does carry with you wherever you go in the world. Uh, you made reference a little while ago about only one uh, prosecution and punishment by death for treason in the United States, and that was uh, Hippolito Salazar. He was uh, the only person ever executed by federal authorities for treason against the United States since the adoption of the U.S. Constitution. Is that correct? Yes, and this is um, really quite an extraordinary story, and it's one that I wasn't aware of until just a, a year or so ago. It was uh, generally stated by treason scholars, including me, that no one uh, had been executed under 
federal authority, uh, and that turns out to be incorrect. Uh, what happened um, was in 1847, uh, during uh, the Mexican-American War, uh, United States forces had invaded uh, the Republic of Mexico and had essentially conquered uh, the region of New Mexico. And the military leaders on the ground announced that New Mexico is now part of the United States, uh, that everybody living there was a United States citizen, and that anybody who resisted the American military uh, would be guilty of treason against the United States. Uh, now, that was totally incorrect. Uh, that region was legally still part of the Republic of Mexico. It wouldn't get transferred to the United States until uh, the treaty that ended the war a year later. Uh, and you can imagine just how absurd it is by sort of thinking of another context. So, you know, suppose uh, when the Americans invaded Iraq in 2003, they had said that you know Baghdad was now part of the United States, everybody living there was a United States citizen, and anybody who resisted the American military was guilty of treason against the United States. It's completely absurd. Um, what you've done is you've invaded a foreign country, and they have a right uh, to resist you and, and to fight. So what happened was we ended up with a trial uh, of a number of people, one of whom was Hippolito Salazar, uh, who had resisted uh, the American military, and he was convicted and executed for treason. And he's the only person uh, ever convicted under, sorry, ever executed under federal authority. And he was a Mexican citizen convicted at a trial conducted in the Republic of Mexico um, for treason against the United States, a country that he had never set foot in. Uh, he spoke no English. The trial was conducted uh, in English. Uh, and he is, was utterly bewildered. You know, how could I be guilty of treason uh, for resisting and invading foreign power. Uh, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And so as word of this eventually got back to Washington, D.C., uh, members of Congress were appalled. Uh, this, this made absolutely no sense. Uh, and the Polk administration eventually had to admit that it had made a mistake and that um, there was no legal justification for the treason charge. They said, well, he, Salazar was a bad guy. He could have been charged with murder. Um, but they did concede that, that treason was incorrect. And so, simply as a matter of law, um, he'd been ex he was a legally innocent man. And um, I think it was uh, General Stephen uh, Carney that uh, pushed this forward. He was the commanding general that took over Santa Fe, uh, the New Mexico part of uh, Mexico, without firing a single shot. Yeah, so this is, you know, he's sort of legendary um, in American history for that military exploit. Uh, but this, you know, what he did once he got there, is, I think, is equally important part of the story. Hmm. Well, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you for those people who have just tuned in. Uh, you are listening to a conversation with Carlton Larson, a professor of law at the University of California, Davis, about his new book, On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Okay, so uh, then we go to uh, Jefferson Davis. Uh, a statue of him uh, was removed from its pedestal in New Orleans. Oh, well, this is actually current stuff. This happened in 2017. Mayor Mitch Landrieu explained the city's reasoning to literally put the Confederacy on a pedestal in some of our most prominent public places 
is an affront to our present and a bad prescription for our future. Uh, there was no treason committed at that time in 2017, but it could be considered that everyone who was a part of the Confederacy who had committed treason against the United States. Is that correct? Yes. So the Civil War is really sort of the biggest act of mass treason in our nation's history, and every person um, who was part of the Confederate Army or who was you know, giving them assistance um, had committed um, the offense of levying war against the United States. Uh, and we tend not to use the words um, treason or traitor so much to describe the Southerners now. We tend to use the term rebel. Uh, but if you look at the sources from the Civil War, um, the North very much uses this term um, traitor uh, and treason to describe Southern behavior. Um, there's a famous line in the in the the song, the battle cry of freedom. You know, down with the traitor, and up with the stars. Uh, and that the, you know that this was not this was a crime uh, that had been uh, committed. Now, yeah, yeah. No, go ahead, right ahead. Okay, so so the but the question is, well, assuming that all all those people did commit a crime, what do you do about it once the war is over? I mean, in theory, you could charge every single person uh, with treason and. In theory, I suppose you could execute them or send them to prison uh, for the rest of their lives, but that would have been sort of utterly unthinkable um, as a conclusion to the Civil War. And so uh, the question was, well, maybe we could deal with some of the very highest-ranking Confederate leaders. Um, Robert E. Lee, I think, got a pass from General Grant at Appomattox by the terms of the surrender, where Grant essentially said, we'll leave you alone uh, if you surrender. And so really, if you're going to try anybody, it's going to be the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, because you really can't try anybody else if you don't try him. So he was indicted uh, for treason and uh, was under indictment for several years, uh, but eventually received a pardon uh, from Andrew Johnson. So even he um, escaped punishment. Yeah, Andrew Johnson created a, a number of problems uh, for Grant uh, when Grant won the 1868 election for the presidency because uh, he had gan granted all these pardons for people who probably should have had some uh, punishment levied uh, towards them. And also, Reconstruction was stopped in the South. Uh, during Grant's time, uh, he prosecuted uh, Ku Klux Klan members uh, that had been allowed to roam free uh, up until uh, Grant was erect, elected because uh, Davis was sympathetic to the South, wasn't he? Yeah, so I mean, and Johnson certainly jo in, his Johnson. Later, yeah, in his later years as, as president was, was very sympathetic um, to um, the white Southern class. He, of course, was, was from Tennessee, um, which, which was a you know, a state that had seceded, um, and Grant, you know, was, you know, much, much, much better president for all of the reasons you note. Um, one, if one were to, I suppose, defend Johnson, one might note that um, in the course of these legal proceedings over Jefferson Davis, um, the Chief Justice of the United States, Selman Chase, who was uh, one of the judges presiding over the trial, uh, had issued a ruling saying that the Fourteenth Amendment barred. Davis's prosecution, and this was a really bizarre uh, and strange ruling. 
Um, but it had the imprimatur of the Chief Justice of the United States, and it's possible um, that had the issue reached the full Supreme Court, uh, they might have agreed with Chase. And so uh, I think Johnson sort of thought, well, rather than you know, pick a big fight uh, with the Chief Justice over this issue, uh, I'll just let it go. Um, but it's kind of hard to know what would have happened um, if the case had gone forward. It's interesting uh, about Johnson, because not only was he involved in uh, uh, pardoning people who had committed treason, but he was one vote away from being impeached. Right, yeah, he was our first president to uh, be impeached. And I think that was a negotiation that uh, prevented his impeachment from going forward. Yeah, and, 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 when, and one of the articles of impeachment against him was basically, you know, intemperate harangues. Um, they're inappropriate uh, for a president. <laughs> so I have written down here Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, that was an interesting thing, but it was probably too long for me to write it all down. But maybe that triggers something that you could talk about. Yeah, so this is... Um, just pulling it up here in my book. This is... Um, this is a provision that um, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Chase used to argue that Davis could not be prosecuted. Uh, and what this provision says is actually a very important part of the 14th Amendment, and it's designed to make sure that the Confederates do not uh, return to power. Uh, and it says, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president or vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. And so what this meant was that if you had been a you know, high-ranking Confederate official, um, you could not serve in public office. Uh, and so it was really meant to be sort of a you know, a purging effect um, to make sure that these people would, would never have power again. Well, Chase looked at that and said, that's a punishment for having been a Confederate official. And he read that as being the exclusive punishment for being a Confederate official, hmm. uh, that the only punishment you would get would, would be this exclusion from office. Now, that's a very, very strange reading of that provision. I mean, you have a constitutional provision singling out Confederate officials for uh, a particular type of legal disability, um, you know, suggests not that it's exclusive, but these are particularly bad people. Uh, and so it's very, very unusual. Uh, but basically, Chase, he wanted to be president of the United States, and mm. he thought that there's just a political minefield here if he has to try, preside over the trial of Jefferson Davis. He just didn't see any good that would come out of it. And so he actually tipped off the defense. Uh, about this legal argument and said, you know, told them I'd be receptive to this, and then they made the argument in court, and, and, and he agreed with them. And the, uh, the, the damage continued even further, because in the election of 1876, uh, when there was a tie, uh, there was a compromise worked out, and Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes, became president for one term. He agreed to that, and he stopped Reconstruction in the South. Yeah. And that allowed the Ku Klux Klan and all those former uh, traitors or rebels to come back up and hold office and oppress uh, people of color. 
Yeah, and it took and it took um, it took a bit of time. I mean, it was it was really you know, from sort of 1877 to the into the 1890s for that really to work itself out. But by the 1890s, you essentially have you know, complete white domination um, of the South um, in a way that's simply totally inconsistent with uh, what the the drafters of Reconstruction had had hoped for. So we have talked a, uh, a little bit about enemies of the United States and. Uh, there are specific definitions of what an enemy of the United States is uh, in legal terms. Could you please explain that? Yeah, so the Constitution provision says um, one strand of treason is uh, aiding the enemies of the United States, uh, giving them aid and comfort. Uh, And so then that raises this sort of big question, well, what does it mean to be um, an enemy? Uh, And this is actually fairly technical legal language, um, the, the phrase um, enemies, uh, enemies and aid and comfort, as well as actually the living war phrase, uh, these come from an old English statute uh, of 1351. It was the English statute of treasons, uh, which had first sought to limit the crime in England. Uh, and so those had, by 1787, had a pretty clear legal definition. Courts had interpreted them and made statements as to what they meant. Uh, and with respect to enemies, um, the pretty clear understanding was that this referred to um, foreign nations or groups uh, with whom England was in a state of open war. Uh, and so that understanding seems to have been adopted uh, by the framers. Uh, they repeatedly said, you know, relying on the words of this English statute and on the judicial interpretations of it uh, in England. Uh, and so that means that an enemy can't be any domestic group. Uh, it has to be um, a foreign group. Um, it can be a nation. Typically, it's a nation, but it can also be a group. I think, for example, Al-Qaeda uh, is an enemy under that definition. Uh, and it also has to be a state of open war, um, meaning not that you're just kind of you know poking at each other um, in the shadows, uh, but there, that there is an actual warfare going on between the two nations that is apparent uh, to everyone so that U.S. citizens know um, that you can't aid this particular country. And you point out, uh, just after you've explained all the things we just heard you say, that the failure to understand that last point contributes to the most significant misapprehensions of American treason law. Yeah, so this is um, where I sort of started getting the most um, you know, phone calls about uh, Donald Trump starting in 2016 and then really accelerating in 2017. And these all dealt with connections between him or members of his campaign or members of his government and Russia. And for, you know, just sort of a person, you know, hearing that news and he thinks the President of the United States has some connection with Russia, well, that sounds really bad. And, you know, immediately the, the term treason or betrayal or traitor pops into mind. And that's certainly a very understandable reaction. Um, But as a technical matter of treason law, um, we are not in a state of open war uh, with Russia. And and that means uh, that Trump could do essentially anything uh, with respect to Russia, and it wouldn't technically be treason. He could hand all our military secrets uh, to Russia, and it wouldn't be treason. He could hand all our military secrets to China, uh, and it wouldn't be treason. Now, um, that doesn't mean that it's okay. I mean, once we get to the point of saying, well, it's not technically treason, you've probably done something pretty darn bad. Uh, and fortunately, we have a whole bunch of other laws dealing with national security uh, to deal with situations like that. And so 
um, most national security problems are not going to be dealt with through treason law, but through a whole bunch of other statutes. Uh, in in that in a case like that, the espionage statutes would be the most typical. Um, you, know, you just can't simply give secrets to any foreign country, whether we're at war with them or not. So would that be the uh, the laws that the Rosenbergs were convicted under? Yeah, exactly. So the Rosenbergs um, were convicted for um, spying for the, the Soviet Union, handing them nuclear secrets in the early 1950s. Um, but they couldn't actually be tried for treason because we weren't technically at war with the Soviet Union. Or at least, I mean, we were, we were in the Cold War, but it wasn't an actual state of open war. Um, now, they were colloquially described as traitors, um, and, and even the prosecutor and the presiding judge in the case sometimes used that term, treason. Um, but that wasn't actually the offense. The actual offense was uh, espionage. I think even more precisely, it was a conspiracy uh, to com- commit espionage. Um, that, um, and in their case, that, that led to execution. So, you, you know, that's a very, very serious offense. Uh, and the, the next person uh, to be convicted of, uh, I guess, uh, spying espionage was Aldrich Ames, whom you describe as... By any colloquial definition of the term, Ames was a traitor, one of the very worst people America has ever produced. So could you expand on that a bit? Um, I remember the case, but I don't remember how bad he was described as. Yeah, he was really quite bad. I mean, this, this, he was a you know, career CIA officer who had risen fairly high uh, in the agency and had been um, working for the Soviets for years and, and gave them just an enormous amount uh, of uh, American intelligence and, and he appeared to do it for just um, sort of exceptionally sort of cruddy reasons. And he uh, um, you know, felt that he wasn't appreciated enough um, at, at, at work and he wanted the money that the Soviets would give him. Uh, and so he completely betrayed uh, the country. And I think you know, it's absolutely right. In a, in a colloquial sense, you would say um, he's a traitor. But Again, in his case, as in the Rosenbergs, you couldn't actually try him on a treason charge because uh, formally uh, the Soviet Union, I guess it may have been Russia by the time he was um, uh, actually caught, um, was was not technically an enemy. And didn't he also do it for a lot of money? Yeah. I guess that makes it worse. Uh, if you're doing it because you're sympathetic to the country that you're giving the information to, that's one thing. But if you're just uh, a mercenary, uh, that makes it pretty bad. But don't, doesn't the CIA have a way to screen out their people? Aren't they supposed to be checked every year or two? Well, they're supposed to. I mean, obviously this one um, all through the cracks. Um, you know, hopefully they learn something from this incident. So during World War II, you mentioned that uh, we uh, did uh, prosecute people for treason uh, in Italy, Germany, and Japan. And one of the most famous people who was considered a traitor was Tokyo Rose, uh, the radio broadcaster. Um, But actually, she may not have been guilty uh, of treason. Yeah, her story is really quite fascinating because there's the legend of, of Tokyo Rose and then there's the actual reality. And the legend uh, is that you had this English-speaking broadcaster from Radio Tokyo who was supposedly uh, taunting American troops by you know, t- 
you know, telling them the names of their girlfriends at home who've supposedly been um, unfaithful and various other sorts of bizarre things, and who supposedly had access to all kinds of military secrets that she would use uh, in these broadcasts. And absolutely none of this uh, was true. Uh, a U.S. military intelligence report complained that most of these legends of, of Tokyo Rose have been created out of the fertile imaginations uh, of American service members and uh, didn't bear any resemblance to reality. Um, the reality was um, a young woman uh, from Los Angeles named Iva Tagori, um, Japanese-American uh, woman, U.S. citizen, uh, who ended up stuck behind enemy lines in Japan after Pearl Harbor while she was on a trip to visit her aunt, who was very ill. Um, and she was unable to get back to the United States and ended up uh, eventually working for Radio Tokyo as a broadcaster where she introduced uh, musical selections uh, and um, paid, by her terms, a sort of fairly sort of, you know, sassy quips about various things. Uh, but she never broadcast propaganda. She never um, argued in favor of the Japanese cause, never argued against the United States. She did anything like that. Um, and this was in contrast to people such as, say, Axis Sally in Berlin, who did all those things, or Robert or Ezra Pound in Italy, who did those things. And after the war, um, Tagori was apprehended by American military forces in Japan, and um, it was looked into, and the Department of Justice concluded there's no case here. She didn't do anything um, that was disloyal, and she couldn't be charged uh, with treason. Uh, but a couple of years later, um, the Truman administration changed its mind, uh, and she was indicted uh, and tried for treason in San Francisco and eventually convicted uh, and ended up spending um, a number of years in a federal prison in West Virginia. Um, ultimately received a pardon uh, from President Ford uh, after uh, the main witness against her in the trials that recanted uh, and said that they had lied uh, in their testimony. I, I don't think, though, that the, it should be the GIs that are uh, uh, to blame for expanding things. I think it's Hollywood screenwriters who took advantage of uh, something and blew it up into outside of proportion uh, that it should have been. I mean, because uh, you look at some of these old war movies, and it's uh, Tokyo Rose or somebody like her who are— uh, broadcasting those things that you mentioned, the names of their girlfriends or their parents or their sisters and brothers. Uh, but it was the screenwriters that wrote uh, those movies. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, that in, it has, has made a big um, difference. But here's, here's a quote from um, the book. This was written during the war. Um, an Army intelligence report complained that countless unfounded rumors about Tokyo Rose were great headaches and a form of unwitting propaganda originated by our own forces. Um, so certainly the, I don't think that GIs deserve any, any blame for the ultimate um, treason trial, um, but there did seem to be this sort of myth um, about Tokyo Rose um, that, that was floating around um, in the ranks for some reason. Okay, I'm going to pause for a little break here and introduce you again. This is Politics, a Love Story, I am your host, Bob Bashansky, and we are having a very good conversation with Carlton Larson, professor of constitutional law at UC Davis Law School, and his book is On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Uh, so uh, what is adhering to the enemy, giving it aid and comfort? That's so that we as non-attorneys might be able to understand it a bit. Yeah, this is a, a fairly complicated question. 
Um, so the constitutional phrase, as you note, is adhering to the enemy, giving it aid and comfort. So that means you can't just be adhering to the enemy in the sense that you think the enemy should win. Uh, so, you know, say during World War II, you thought, you know, the United States was in the wrong and Germany should win. And, you know, that is that adhering to the enemy? No. Well, maybe in some abstract sense. But what you have to do is actually give it aid and comfort. That is, you have to take some action um, that, that helps the enemy uh, and that helps the enemy generally in its um, war measures. Um, so there aren't a whole lot of cases that deal with this uh, particular problem. Uh, but the ones that have, that have dealt with it have tended to look at, well, what, what is it that you had to give them? Uh, and the leading case here came out of World War II and involved the famous uh, Nazi saboteurs. Uh, these were um, men that had been sent uh, by Hitler. They emerged from a submarine uh, in New York and in, in Florida and then came off out of the subs in Nazi uniforms. Um, quickly changed into civilian clothes and then entered into the U.S. with the intent of committing various acts of sabotage. And some of them met up in New York City um, with a a man named Anthony Kramer, and they met him at a bar. Uh, they drank with him, and then at some point um, he was given a money belt and some equipment that he held for them uh, as part of their uh, plot. Uh, so he was charged with treason uh, for having done this. And under the Constitution, you had to have two witnesses uh, to the same overt act, and that's a, a unique provision of treason law. We have to have two witnesses to the same overt act, and that's really not true of, of any other crime. And if they had two witnesses to the, the money belt, um, then they probably would, would have had a, a, a pretty clear case. Um, but they didn't. Uh, they had two witnesses to the drinking in the bar. And so the case was that he was, you know, drinking in the bar with these these Nazi agents. And Supreme Court divided five to four on this question, and the majority of five said that's just simply not good enough. Uh, it's not clear that drinking in a bar with these agents did anything um, to help the enemy or to promote uh, the enemy's cause. And so that that wasn't enough. Uh, the dissenters said, well, that's, that's simply nitpicking. Uh, it's, you know, it's pretty clear in the context that this was part and parcel of his assistance. Uh, to the enemy, and that you know the, the majority's view uh, makes the way of the traitor too easy. Uh, so, but that, that's sort of the the, the leading case uh, on that point. And there really is very thin uh, adjudication uh, on treason aspects because, uh, it, as you pointed out, it's rarely prosecuted. Yeah. So this is the, the Kramer case is really one of only. Um, three cases where treason convictions have actually been directly reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court, and they, they all came in the wake uh, of World War II. So uh, it's often the case that when you try to figure out what the parameters of the law are, is that you end up digging in um, you know, very sort of obscure 19th century sources or even into 18th and 17th century English law um, to try to get a handle on it. Um, a lot of it is in grand jury charges uh, from judges in um, the late 18th century, early 19th century America. Uh, and so sometimes you just can't be overly confident uh, about what the law is because there just isn't enough there um, to really be sure, particularly in a, you know, a sort of weird uh, situation that maybe hasn't come up before. Um, somebody uh, that you mentioned in the book, uh, I'm going to throw out his name, Tomoya Kawakita. Uh, what role did he play? 
so Kawakita was one of those people whose conviction was actually reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, affirmed. And he was a uh, U.S. citizen uh, who was in Japan during World War II, uh, and he ended up uh, in a position where he uh, had authority over Americans in a prisoner of war camp. And he was uh, charged with brutality uh, towards those American prisoners. Uh, he was actually caught when uh, after the war when someone he would, it was returned and he was in Los Angeles and someone who had been in the camp recognized him uh, in a store I think it was uh, and then he was charged uh, with treason and the basic view was you know even though he was living in Japan at the time he still had loyalty to the United States and that uh, precluded him uh, from doing what he did uh, to the American prisoners. And you also point out uh, in the book that there is a requirement of traitorous intent, uh, because the next thing is, is it possible to commit treason inadvertently? Yeah, so fortunately the answer to that is is no. Um, uh, treason has always been a crime that where the courts have emphasized that you not only must do it, uh, but you must also intend to do it. And this has generally come up in the context of aiding the enemy, that is that you... Um, have to intend uh, to aid the enemy and to and to help them. Uh, so, in there was in in one case, the issue was a one of those Nazi saboteurs. Again, um, he had gone to his father, and his father gave him a car. And the issue in the case was, well, if the father simply gave him the car because it, this was his son, and he wanted his son to have a car, that's that's not treason. Um, but if he gave him the car in order to help him on his, um, you know, acts of sabotage, uh, then it would be uh, treason. So it would turn on uh, your actual state of mind. Uh, and generally, courts have suggested that um, you have to have at least the per- at minimum. You, you know, you, you you if you have if you have the purpose of aiding the enemy, that's clearly treason. And then there's some suggestion that if you know. Um, you are aiding the enemy, even if it's not actually your purpose, but you know that this will assist the enemy, that that might be good enough. And that's, that's one of those points that's not totally clear uh, from the cases. Uh, but what is clear is that you can't do it inadvertently. Um, so, for example, I mean, you know, if a Nazi agent in World War II showed up at your house and you don't know they're a Nazi, and you invite them in and give them dinner, uh, you clearly have not committed treason. Yeah, you have four uh, four particular points uh, that sum that up, and that it's a as you pointed out, two of them: a person acts purposefully, a person acts knowingly, and the other two are a person acts recklessly or a person acts negligently. Yeah, and so it's pretty clear that if you all you've done is act recklessly or, or negligently, that that's not going to be enough uh, for treason, and that that makes a difference from some other crimes. There's lots of crimes where if you act negligently. Uh, you're still going to be liable. Um, So now we move on to um, the war on terror. Uh, Adam Gadan and the war on terror in 2006, a grand jury in Santa Ana indicted, uh, is it, am I pronouncing it right, Gadan? I think it's Gadan. I don't know that I've actually heard it pronounced. I I, I think it's Gadan. Okay. So a Santa Ana uh, grand jury indicted him for treason. And that was the first treason indictment in an American court since October 27th, 1954. Yeah, so this was a, this was a pretty big deal, um, just um, you know, on, that, on that point. So really it's the only indictment we've had now in nearly uh, 70 years. 
And what was also particularly distinctive about this was that he was charged with uh, aiding al-Qaeda, which is not uh, a nation-state. And all the previous indictments we've had uh, in treason cases for aiding the enemy have been cases of actually aiding a a nation-state with whom we were in a a declared war. Uh, But here we had, um, you know, aid to al-Qaeda as a form of treason. And I think that's that's right. Um, I had written a lot of your article a few, a few months before uh, the indictment arguing um, that a group like al-Qaeda is an enemy for purposes of uh, the treason clause. Uh, now, it would have been very fascinating if that case had actually gone forward, because he almost certainly would have raised the defense, uh, you know, the argument that al-Qaeda wasn't an enemy, and then a court would have had to decide it, and we then would have some sort of clear law on that point. Uh, but he ended up getting killed in a, in a drone strike, and so as a result, he was never actually prosecuted. So um, I'm going to use a, a, a segue, and then I, I'd like to finish up uh, our time talking about current stuff. But uh, this one sentence, just as we should not cut down the law to get at the devil, neither should we broaden the definition of treason to get at Donald Trump. Yeah, so that's something I, I note at the end of the book, um, and a lot of people have been very frustrated um, with um, the issue of Donald Trump and uh, treason. And I must say, you know, as, as someone who's not a particular fan of Donald Trump, uh, being a person that you know has to you know is reported in the media saying no, Trump didn't technically commit treason, um, is not something I particularly relish. Uh, you know, <laughs> giving a legal defense uh, to Trump, and so a lot of people said, well, you know. If it's not treason, it should be. Uh, and, you know, we should change our treason law so that it covers everything that Trump uh, has done. And so what I, what I considered at the, at, in the end of the book is whether that's a good idea uh, or not. And my ultimate conclusion is, is, is that it's not. Um, that our treason law, for the most part, has worked pretty well, uh, and there's no particular reason uh, to change it. Uh, and perhaps most importantly... Uh, if you're going to change it in a way to make it broader, to give the government more power um, to charge people with treason, uh, well, you know, as of right now, that would be giving the power to uh, Donald Trump and Bill Barr. Uh, and you know, I think liberals and Democrats should think very carefully uh, about whether that's something that would be a good idea or not. So looking at the uh, uh, the panoply of uh, people and actions taken uh, and things that were said, uh, do you see any potential uh, claims of treason by anyone that was around Donald Trump during these last four years? I haven't seen anything uh, where I would feel confident saying that um, there was an act of treason that would justify um, a criminal indictment. Uh, there's There's a couple of things that have come close. Um, one is, is the betrayal of the turd. Uh, sorry, of the, <laughs> the turds in Turkey. <laughs> the Kurds in Turkey. Boy, that's a bad tongue twister, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> yes, um, the, the the Kurds, where, where Trump essentially, you know, after we'd made various promises to them um, in the fight against ISIS, we we more or less abandoned them, and this dramatically allowed ISIS to. Um, benefit in that region. Um, and I think if Trump had done that with the actual intent of aiding ISIS, um, that could be an act of treason 
uh, by aiding the enemy. Uh, but it doesn't seem like his intent was to aid ISIS. His intent was simply just to get out, um, consistent with his general view um, that the United States should not be involved um, in these endless Middle Eastern wars. So I think it would be very hard Except uh, to, if, uh, to build a case on, on, on that. But what if Vladimir Putin was directing him to do that? Well, I think even in that case, that still wouldn't make it um, treason because Putin wouldn't, again, technically be uh, an enemy. So uh, overall, uh, as you see things, uh, we should not expand uh, the treason law that is there because that would create more problems than it would solve. But on the other hand, is there something that we could do so we don't have somebody like Donald Trump uh, come up and really mess the world up the way he's done? Well, I think that's a, you know, a really, really hard problem. Um, I mean, if you think you sort of, if you'd imagine, let's say we, we went back to the year 2014 or whatever and said, let's think about all the bad things a president could do and how could we craft laws and policies to prevent them. Uh, I don't know if anybody would be able to come up with all of the bizarre and horrible things that, that Trump has done. I mean, so much, so much of our, our, our government rests on the understanding and perception that people will act in good faith and not do uh, certain things. And so, you know, as, as bad as it is to say, I, I think we're probably we're left with elections and hopefully the good judgment of people in elections. Um, I, I assume that, you know, when Trump leaves office, more stuff will come to light um, about what he's done, and I assume that none of that will be particularly flattering, um, and that may make it harder for him to ever be elected to office in the future. Uh, but in terms of, like, actually crafting laws, um, they, they, they sort of come down to, you know, the don't-be-a-jerk <laughs> type of law, and you know, that's, that's just not something you can, you can make legally workable. What about financial disclosure? Uh, I mean, he's enriching himself while he, he's been in office these four years. At least uh, we are believing that he is, because he's never disclosed his entanglements, either with Putin or other banks that we don't know about, offshore accounts. Uh, and when he, when he writes uh, or has Congress write a law and he signs it, how much is this benefiting him? Shouldn't we know that? No, I totally agree. I, I think we should have more um, financial disclosures than we do. Um, it's it gets a little tricky in terms of how you would how you do that because there are potential constitutional problems if states add that um, as a as a as a qualification of ballot access, um, or if Congress were to simply mandate it of the president. Um, so um, it's it's not necessarily something like you can just kind of you know, wave a wand and, and make happen. Um, but there, there certainly could be better enforcement of this. I mean, I do think um, the courts that have been sort of looking at the, the emolument issue um, could have addressed that more more forthrightly. Um, similarly, I think, you know, frankly, the Democrats in, in the House could have done a, a better job uh, on oversight on some of these issues. Well, really? I mean, they're still waiting to get information that uh, they were denied as part of their oversight. Yeah, but they also, I mean, they, they dragged their feet and, didn't, and, and filed those things, you know, you know so, so late into their tenure. Um, I mean, uh, if they'd been really rest, ready to go January 2018 with a, um, sorry, 20, um, 
2019 with with a whole range of subpoenas and things. I think they could have done um, a better job. But then they had a, a reluctant Senate who was, uh, it was a Republican majority Senate who many of those people who voted to acquit Trump had said before they even heard any evidence, and they didn't allow a lot of evidence, but before they even heard anything, they said they're going to vote to acquit him. Yeah, and that's, you know, pretty disappointing, uh, frankly. I mean, I think, you know, our, our, the impeachment provision was written by people uh, who assumed sort of good faith on the part of the senators uh, and, frankly, didn't really imagine partisan politics to the same extent that we have now. Um, that is, they could imagine a corrupt and incompetent, a dishonest president. Um, they probably didn't imagine uh, that members of the Senate would simply be in the tank for him because they're the same political party. And I think that, that that's what they would probably view as the most disappointing uh, feature of our current system is not necessarily that we had a bad president, which they, they could have foreseen that, uh, but that we have such a bad Senate. So is there anything that um, you have thought about uh, that might help strengthen uh, either the leadership or the laws of this country? Uh, I realize that uh, you are touted as uh, the country's treason expert, but you're an attorney, and you see things. And are there any other recommendations? Hello? My conversation with Carlton Larson about his new book, On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law, was interrupted after about 53 minutes. With maybe five or six minutes left, Carlton and I thought that it might be too difficult to get him back for such a short time. He suggested that I explain a related topic, sedition. I know that as we get older, we don't hear as well as we once did. I am not talking about a song from Fiddler on the Roof, Tradition. I sincerely hope that sedition does not become a tradition. The Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary defines sedition, that is S-E-D-I-T-I-O-N, as incitement of resistance to or insurrection against lawful authority. Is sedition a crime? Oh, yes, it is a crime against the state. Though sedition may have the same ultimate effect as treason, it is generally limited to the offense of organizing or encouraging opposition to government, such as in speech or writing, or actively attacking a government facility or building. Sound familiar? That falls short of the more dangerous offenses constituting treason. Why, you might ask, do I think that a few minutes to talk about sedition is so important? It is because 147 members of the U.S. House of Representatives tried to overturn an election and throw out the votes of 81 million Democrats who, without any criminality, as attested to by Trump toady and partisan Republican former Attorney General William Barr, said there was no widespread election fraud in the 2020 presidential election. If those 156, uh, 146 GOP members of Congress, as well as Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, and six other U.S. senators were arrested and put on trial for sedition, there would be lots of controversies, and First Amendment experts would probably defend their right of speech. On one hand, people have the right to say almost anything they want. 
Over the last 233 years, many people were put on trial for their verbal and written speech. Most of them were found to be not guilty, no matter how objectionable their words. Yet exceptions were noted. Yelling fire in a crowded theater is not protected speech. Now, we have elected lawmakers who, when being sworn into office, swear to uphold the Constitution. If they engaged in seditious behavior, they are violating that oath. And that oath is, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, and that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter, so help me God. Did these members of Congress uphold their oath of office? About as well as Donald Trump told the truth. So over the past four years, we saw Donald Trump allegedly violating numerous laws and as yet paying no penalty. That seeming lawlessness has probably inspired the mobs and the Congress members to engage in seditious behavior and to try to illegally overturn a lawful election that was won by 7 million votes and 74 electoral votes. They have lost this attempt to subvert the public's will. How will they be penalized? I think that the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, should not allow those 146 House members to take their seats. There should at least be a debate about whether or not they violated their oath of office. This should be a public spectacle televised for the world to see and hear how dishonest these people are and dishonest they truly are. I think that the Republican Party has a requirement that to run for office, you must lie a lot and swear to Trump's lies, all 20,000 or so of them. On Wednesday, January 6, 2021, I am saying and typing the whole day because I want it remembered by everyone, because that was the day that an armed mob took over the Capitol building for the first time since 1814 by the British. Only this time, people died, and now the Capitol building is a murder crime scene, sedition in real time. In two weeks, my guest will be Fifth Friday regular Phil Worf. He has agreed to be here in April, July, and October as well. We will discuss the aftermath of the election and the House takeover as short as it was. It didn't have to be at all. If any of you listening think that institutional racism has been eliminated, you are as out of touch with reality as Trump is. The peaceful Black Lives Matter protest was well attended by all kinds of armed governmental officers using all kinds of non-lethal but harmful weaponry. Everyone knew that the rioting on Wednesday was coming. Where were the law enforcement officers in near the number as for the BLM peaceful marchers? Next up, Wondrous World of Music. Please stay tuned and thank you for listening.